Welcome to the New Hampshire Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham, Managing Editor at nhjournal.com. Thank you so much for listening, for sharing this with your friends, for rating it on iTunes and all that other cool podcast stuff. I'm still trying to figure out how it is that Iowa has a cool motorcycle gig for their presidential candidates and we don't. How do we miss that? We're the home of Bike Week. How, how do we not have a candidate motorcycle thing? I don't, I don't and I, by the way, seeing what he can do with a bicycle I can't even imagine what Joe Biden would do with a motorcycle that would just be great of course you'd have to keep the sandbags off the road but Joe Biden on a hog I want to see that I'd pay real money to see that then again you know Joe Biden on a staircase escalator you know I'd pay to see all that too anyway but that it is what it is we had a fall from the former from the president excuse me and uh, it, it is a bigger story than you would know from the media coverage, which has been either mostly non-existence or everybody falls. What's the big deal? Well, yeah, everybody falls, but not everybody has to worry about getting up. So enough of that. You know, I had a great uh, success with the last podcast we did when I had an interview with uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And uh, thank you, by the way, for those who, uh, who tuned that in. And if you haven't checked it out, it's up at nhjournal.com. And uh, what I did is I had the interview first and then my blatherating, pontificating afterwards. So we're going to do that, too. I caught up with State Senator Jeb Bradley to talk about what's going on with the budget, with Medicaid expansion, and with some some strange developments inside the state house. It, it was like, I don't know what, Peyton Place, Clue. I mean, it was conspira- a, a, a bad episode of 007. There were a lot of weird things going on in the state house the last couple of weeks, and uh, we've got the story at uh, nhjournal.com. And here with uh, State Senator Bradley, you don't want to miss that. And then afterwards, uh, some developments I thought are interesting for where we are with the uh, First in the Nation primary here in New Hampshire. First, of course, got to say thank you to Dr. Bruce Houghton at perfectsmiles.com. Perfect Smiles right in Nashua. So easy to get to. Great uh, expertise from Dr. Bruce if you are looking for someone to take care of your smile, but maybe you uh, need some work or maybe you like your smile and want to keep it that way, nice and healthy, uh, start with Dr. Bruce at PerfectSmiles.com. If you've seen the ads in the newsletter, you've seen uh, videos from people like me and Howie and others who've worked with uh, Dr. Bruce and we all work with him because he's the best. And so if you need some work done on your smile, if you're just looking for a new dentist, please start with Dr. Bruce. And when you do, You'll be incredibly happy. You'll be working with someone who's terrific and professional at the top of his game, and you'll be supporting New Hampshire Journal and the New Hampshire Journal podcast. So thanks so much for that. Let's go to Senator Jeb Bradley here at nhjournal.com. So Senate President Jeb Bradley, uh, let's start with the rumors that are swirling with the insiders who read nhjournal.com, one of which is that there's a move afoot by your friends on the other side of the aisle to try to break... Medicaid expansion from the budget, and to do something very rare, which is override the committee, pull it off the retained calendar committee, and bring it to the floor for a vote. First of all, is that even legally possible with the way you guys run this crazy zoo that is the you know, New Hampshire state government? And secondly, what would you think of that idea? Well, I think, let me answer the second part first. Sure. That would be a very, very dangerous um, maneuver Why? If, it was, if it was done, because I think it not only risks Medicaid expansion, mm-hmm. but it risks the budget too. Mm-hmm. And you know, for House Democrats to even contemplate that when 
they put a gun to my head right. and said, you know, we're voting for a two-year Medicaid expansion right. deal, and then they were critical of me yesterday in a meeting in this office that I went to seven years because my responsibility, right. as I see it, is to make sure that the 50 to 60,000 people depending on Medicaid expansion, to say nothing of the providers, the hospitals, sure. the business community, all of the people that have gotten behind this coalition effort for the last nine years, our responsibility as adults is to get the job done. Okay, I want to stop right there because I want to get to the Medicaid details second, I promise we're going there. But I was going back to the politics, which is what happens to committee chairs in both parties if they see a committee vote that says, sorry, you can't have this bill, we've decided you can't have the bill, and then you know, whatever this plan is, would that not cause this a problem? This is Washington-style politics at its worst. I mean, we have rules, and I, I, you know, look, the House rules are different than the Senate rules. A bill that gets re-referred in the Senate has to come to the floor for a vote, okay? But in the House, the House rules are different. So, again, I think, you know, it's a very dangerous game. It puts at risk the budget, and it puts at risk... Medicaid expansion. Now explain real quickly, who are the people who are getting Medicaid expansion? Because I, when I talk to people about this, they don't, they confuse it with Medicaid. And I, and of course, so Medicaid traditional is for, Medicaid yeah, go ahead. is for the, you know, lowest income uh, folks in our state. Sure. Okay. Medicaid expansion um, is over that income threshold and up to 138% of poverty and above 138% of poverty people qualify for the exchanges. So it's that 50 to 60,000 people that fall in that tier where they don't qualify for traditional right. Medicaid but do for expanded Medicaid. Who are those people? Uh, I mean, 70% I mean, of them Seventy percent of them actually work. Okay. And they don't have access oftentimes to employer-sponsored insurance. And <clears throat> they are not qualified for the exchange mm -hmm. and the subsidies on the exchange because their income is too low which is why there's Medicaid expansion. One of the interesting conversations I've had uh, with people who are involved in politics is that you're watching the Republican-Democratic coalitions change. Democrats picked up a lot of suburban, college-educated, affluent people who used to be Republicans. And there was a lot of rejection of what might have been called workfare back in the day. But now the Republican coalition includes a lot of blue-collar workers. Like you said, they're working. They're working hard. They don't have insurance through work. And this is, and so one of the frustrations I've heard from people who are advocating for it is, these are our voters now. They may not have been our voters 20 years ago, but these are our voters now. Why would we not let them do this, particularly when the feds are picking up 90% of the bill? Well, and the feds are picking up 90% of the bill, and what happens when you don't have it, okay? So federal law, people get ill, whether they're insured or not, right. they get ill, they show up at the emergency room, the most expensive care, okay, by law, hospitals are required to give that care. Right. So what happens? Hospitals don't get compensated for that, so it becomes a hidden tax because hospitals would go bankrupt. So private insurance contracts with hospitals in their mm -hmm. provider network, when they negotiate, they negotiated that uncompensated care that hospitals have to give. So anybody with private health insurance, whether it's employer-sponsored we're in the individual market, picks up this unbelievably high hidden tax, which, oh, by the way, we've dramatically reduced sure. with Medicaid expansion, which is why the business community 
is universally in support of this program. But are Democrats in the legislature universally in support of it? Why? And where are their I, lines? Because we've heard two-year expansion, we've heard your proposal for seven-year expansion, we've heard on no sunset. Where are the Democrats look, actually? As I said the other day, seven years is a pretty darn good place, mm -hmm. okay? We have the current contract with Medicaid providers runs through 2024, so that's one year that the program is not authorized for because it ends at the end of 2023. So that's one year. Right. When the department goes out to contract for Medicaid expansion, they want to do five years so that you get the best possible right. deal. That's six. And then you need to have one extra year mm -hmm. for a contract extension if you're renegotiating, if you're putting it out sure. to bid again, all that kind of thing. So on a rational policy basis, seven years works. And that's why our responsibility, I believe, is to the people that depend on right. Medicaid expansion for their health care so that they can work, so they can be productive right. members of society, so that hospitals are getting paid, providers are getting paid, businesses have a healthy workforce. So time to stop the political games. A compromise is not always a bad right. thing. I've compromised because I had to. And now I think, you know, people that want to play political games on any side of the issue should stop. But are the Democrats with you on this? Are they willing to say yes? I, I mean, that's what I don't know. Okay. Well, so one of the arguments I've heard from Republicans is we want Medicaid expansion in the budget because the Democrats want it so badly they'll take the rest of the budget. And, that's, and if we lose some Republicans because the margin's so near on the House, that'll get us over the hump. But I'm also hearing that Democrats are working on a plan to go and you know pull that, that bill out to break it from the budget and then tank the budget. Are you hearing that there's talk of tanking the budget? I mean, I, budget? I, I hear rumors in this building all the time, oh, Mike. Yeah. I have heard those rumors, mm -hmm. okay? And I would really be, I would just say that is the worst possible case scenario because everything could wind up in the tank. Mm -hmm. um, the budget. So let's talk about the budget. Sure. Because if... Medicaid expansion is used as a chip to blow up the budget. The first thing that likely gets blown up are the new provider rates, the higher provider rates for hospitals, for mental health centers, for families with disabled children, for the long-term system of care, for senior citizens. Those provider rates are absolutely essential. And the Senate has agreed with the House on the number, or the Finance Committee has, that you know, really will help those providers. But what happens if the budget gets blown up? Right. Uh, I mean, that would put our health care system at risk. To say nothing of the pay raise for state employees, to say nothing of the new money for housing, mm -hmm. for child care, um, for water infrastructure, for property tax relief through road and bridge infrastructure. That was Delisandro's bill. Delisandro actually voted against that the other day. Rosenwald voted against the provider rates for Medicaid expansion in the budget because they're all in-house bill too. Right. They both voted against the pay raise for employees. They voted against the Social Security fix for Group 1 members. Um, they voted against the water infrastructure. I mean, they voted against all the new mental health spending. Why? They think somehow that the perfect, I always try to say this, you should not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And what they're saying is if we don't get everything we want, we're not going to vote for all the things 
the 95% of things that we agree on. And so, you know, they, they're advocating for mm. some more things. Look, budgets are a compromise. I would absolutely like to get the BET, the business enterprise sure. tax, to the level that we said it should be at seven years ago, 0.5%. But it's not in the cards. Right. I've had to compromise. And I think compromise is not a four-letter word, and I would hope that my Democratic colleagues, starting this afternoon in Senate Finance, will recognize that this is a darn good budget that has a lot of things that help a lot of people while having a overall spending level that protects taxpayers because we have made reductions, um, and it is a budget that helps us with the economy, that it is something that they can go forward with. So the last rumor they'll ask you about is talk that there may be an attempt by the House Democrats, since they often have an operating majority on the floor because the margin is so close and their attendance is so good, particularly when you fly people up from Florida with a free plane ticket, <laughs> but um, that they may try to uh, vacate the Speaker's chair. Just from a, from a standpoint of how this building works, you know, setting aside partisan stuff, or just how the building, what do you think of moves like that? Well, it would blow the, it would blow the lid off this building. Right. And it would, it would do so at a time that 1.3 million people in New Hampshire are looking for New Hampshire leaders mm -hmm. to lead and not do what happens in Washington. And I think that, you know, Speaker Packard has done a very good job of trying to bring the disparate um, members of his caucus as well as the outreach, you know, to the, to the Democrats to have created the bipartisan budget that the House sent to us. Now, we've made some changes that I think make it a better but better budget, but at the same time, they, you know, he did a really good job. So blowing this up now, I don't know what the, I don't know what the outcome is. And I can tell you it's bad for the 1.3 million people in this state. And what likely happens if things get blown up here is we have a continuing resolution. State employees don't get their pay raise. Medicaid provider rates don't go up. The housing money, not there. The childcare money, not there. I mean, so the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, if that's what um, some people on the Democratic side want to do, that could well be the end result. I mean, it would be very unfortunate if that happens. And that's why I think that um, my friends, Senator D'Alessandro, and Senator Rosenwald, who we worked with on a very collaborative basis in the Senate Finance Committee, should lead this afternoon, vote for both HB1 and HB2, all the things that they got in it, all the things that I've sure. listed, and start to lead as opposed to, you know, playing the games that are being played. Last question, uh, 2016, you endorsed Chris Christie. He's now running again. I assume you'll be at his event Tuesday night leading the charge. Yes? Uh, no, Tuesday night I have uh, <laughs> other activities. I, I've made it really clear to Governor Sununu, and I've said it right. many times on my um, radio interviews that if he runs for president, I'm a tried-and-true Sununu guy. And if he doesn't? If he doesn't, I will see what happens. Okay. I, it may be a Senate president that I just, you know, stay out of it, too. Or you get in the race. I mean, everyone else is running. You know, why not? You know? No, I can. Michael, I can assure you one thing that won't happen. <laughs> Thanks again to Senator Jeb Bradley for joining us here on the New Hampshire Journal podcast. I want to talk about one 
other political thing. Look, there's a lot to talk about. Chris Christie will be in Tuesday night. We will be covering his announcement at NHIOP here at NH Journal. Uh, and I'm not speculation about well, what does it mean if he enters and what does it mean if he's uh, decides to just be a kamikaze? Is he really not trying to run to win? I, I can't imagine people running for president not trying to win, not thinking they've got a path to win. And I tend to agree with uh, the uh, veteran strategist Michael Murphy on this, who says this is so ridiculously early, and all the pundits and the NH Journal types we're obsessing with every little thing. Most voters not even close to tuned in, and there's going to be a lot of yanking and yakking back and forth. And then sometime, you know, as the primaries actually approach and people have to start thinking about voting, a lot can happen. And he points out that in a general election, because of partisanship and more importantly, negative partisanship, that is, it's not that I want my team to win, it's that I want your team to lose. People are so dug in, it's hard to have a lot of movement in the polls. So three or four or five points is a lot of movement. But in a primary where you basically have everybody on the same team and you're just trying to pick, okay, who on my team, most of whom I pretty much like, do I want to be the team captain? It's not uncommon to have wild swings because you're not swinging from you know a radically different position or candidate to another. You've got a bunch of candidates. Let's face it, as president, what policies would really be that much different if it were a President Haley versus a President Scott versus a President DeSantis versus a President Pence. I mean, how how different would the policies be? The answer is not that much. And so people are making decisions based on other things. It's possible to have a wide swing. Nobody knows where this race is going to go, where it's going to be, what it's going to look like. Uh, but Obviously, having an incumbent, and that's what Donald Trump is, an incumbent in the race is a big deal. And it is very, very possible that this primary is already over. But it is also very, very possible that it's not. What I'm interested in is Chris Christie getting in the race. What does that do to Governor Chris Sununu getting into the race? And you could argue that his place in the voter psyche, not a fan of Trump, you know, willing to uh, to take him on and mock him and attack him. Uh, Chris Christie, I, I don't know that I would call him a moderate Republican because in a way, I don't even know what that means anymore. I, I used to think conservative was, you know, small government, <laughs> individual liberty. Apparently those days are over now. We're all for big government telling every, you know, businesses they better do what conservatives like, whatever. I, but my point is Sununu is definitely a moderate Republican. You could argue that Christie is perceived as a moderate Republican. And so there's a lot of overlap. Does, does that have an impact on Chris Sununu getting into this race? The other thing, the rules for the debate. That, that's another premise of smart people like uh, Mike Murphy, that the debates are going to be huge. It's, the, you know, it's when a bunch of voters kind of tune in for the first time. Once again, not the political junkies like us, but, you know, the the broad swath of voters who actually pick winners and the debates are going to be the first major event. This is all what we're doing right now. All this talk, all this chatter, it's not even preseason. It's almost like pre-draft. I mean, it's just us talking, but the Republican national committee announced Friday what their rules are going to be for getting on stage for the first presidential primary debate on August 23rd in Milwaukee. One is you'll have to be at 1% in three national polls or a combination of national polls and polls from the early states. Chris Sununu should be okay. He's been polling around 1% nationally-ish. And of course, he's going to poll much better than that. Has polled much better than that here in New Hampshire. So he's going to hit the poll part. 
but it's the donors part, a minimum of 40,000 unique donors to the candidate's campaign committee, not to a PAC, but to his committee, and at least 200 unique donors in each of 20 states. Not They don't name the state. My point is, you got, you, you got to have at least 200 donors from 20 different states. I'll put it that way. Maybe it'll be slightly less muddy. Chris Sununu, 200 donors from 20 different states, 40,000 unique donors. Is that possible? On the one hand, the answer is, well, of course, no. I mean, who the heck in, you know, Montana or Arizona or Alabama is going to give Chris Sununu money? They've barely heard of him. Maybe they've seen him on cable a few times, but that's, why would you give money? And uh, it's, it's tough to give, get people to give money anyway. Why him? And one of the answers I've gotten back is, well, look at all the you know money from across the country that people like Don Bolduck and Caroline Levitt were able to get. Uh, and that's true. But you can send out social media and emails and stuff saying, send me money in New Hampshire so I can stop, you know, whatever, evil, evil liberal Democrat Maggie Hassan. Because you're a Republican running against a Democrat. But... In the presidential primary, it's Chris Sununu running against other Republicans. In fact, Republicans were pretty darn popular, like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And so people are going to send him money to run against other Republicans that they know better and probably like more. 40,000 is not a huge number in a country of 330 million people, but it's not nothing either. So that's uh, uh, a concern. I've also talked to some pretty smart political people who say, look, Michael, there are all kinds of ways you can do this. You can uh, basically spend money to get the donations that you need. Uh, you can do things like, you know, have cool t-shirts that you give with a donation. And so basically every time someone buys your t-shirt, it's a donation. And there's all, there are ways to work around. There's uh, there are programs, you know, social media programs that are designed to get small dollar donors. And even though you may end up losing money, it gives you the 40,000 donors you need spread out in the states you need them. But I've had other people say, no, it's uh, particularly with just two months to go and uh, Governor uh, Sununu isn't even in the race. It's too far. I don't know the answer, but I do know that that's going to be a consideration. It's it's a problem that will have to be solved because there's no way that I understand what it means to run for president and try to do whatever it is uh, Governor Sunu wants to do, including being president, that doesn't involve getting on the debate stage, and in particular that first debate stage so you can have some impact, try to build some momentum. So the rules could play a role in how this works. And then there's, well, what network is going to host <laughs> the debates and is the national Republican committee really going to sign up with networks like CNN or NBC or MSNBC? Really? And so then the question is, will there be a debate at all? Or if they, if there is a debate, will it feature any of the names people want to see like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis? And certainly in my case, Chris Sununu, I'd love to see Sununu, Christie, DeSantis, Trump, Haley, Scott, all on the one stage. I think it'd be fascinating. I would it must. It, it wouldn't be as fascinating as you know, President Biden on uh, Segway, but it would be pretty darn fascinating. And I hope to see it and to see what's happening next. 
To see where politics in New Hampshire are headed, well, you've got to go to one place. That's nhjournal.com. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I'm Michael Grant. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Please find us on Twitter, New Hamp Journal, on Facebook, NH Journal, and of course at nhjournal.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. I'm Michael Graham with Inside Sources. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.